Men, please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. We are in the middle of the most glorious of the four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. These are sections of Isaiah's prophecy that give very, very particular revelation about the coming servant of Jehovah, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Uh, This is the last of these four, and it is the most magnificent. Chapter 53 of Isaiah. We are taking some time to walk through this passage. I don't know how it is for you, but on occasion, when I've had time to read books for fun, there have been a few where I've came to the end of the book, and I was wishing it would just keep going on. I didn't want it to end. It kind of got depressed looking at 20 pages to go, 10 pages to go. It's almost over. I feel that way about Isaiah 53, and I come into church on Monday and start my study for the next week, and uh, I have loved every aspect, every part of this chapter, this song of the servant. We're in the third one. There are five total. These verses break down pretty nicely into groups of three. So we are in the third part, looking at verses 4, 5, and 6, although I will read the whole chapter 53 for context. Um, Very simply, um, the content in this chapter is the reason I became a pastor. Um, I did not become a pastor to help people with their marriages. I did not become a pastor to help people know how to deal with their finances, how to work the best job, have a good attitude when you have a job, get along with each other as neighbors, and all the rest of that. Uh, I became a pastor so people would know how to be right with God. And that comes from what happens in Isaiah 53. Now, I think all of those things matter, but they can't change unless you understand Isaiah 53. Uh, They will not be any different in your life if you don't first rest on the work described in Isaiah 53. So the best thing I can do for you is to make sure that you are clear on what is described in Isaiah 53. This is why I became a pastor. Not that it matters, it should matter to you why I became one. I just want you to know how important the content of this chapter is not only to me, but the history of gospel ministry. When we say people are ministers of the gospel, they better understand what Isaiah 53 says, or they're not ministers of the gospel. So we come to this passage with seriousness, but also with great anticipation to once again see unpack for us In this prophecy, Christ's finished work on our behalf. Here now as I read God's inspired word, and because it's inspired, we can be sure it's without error. That's what we mean when we say it's an errant word. And since it's his word and without error, it is authoritative. It should govern our lives, and it's sufficient for our life and for godliness. So we say it's sufficient too, because it is. Hear God's word, Isaiah 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. 
Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's bow as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, we are in awe standing on this side of history, having witnessed the the coming of Christ and his atoning sacrifice, his resurrection. And we read here in Isaiah a prophecy given 700 years before Jesus came and fulfilled these things. And as we open your word, please send your spirit that we might understand the depth of the wisdom and knowledge on display here for us. Grow our faith in you based on what is revealed here in Isaiah about our Savior, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Servant of Jehovah, our Substitute. For this brief time of worship and contemplation, give us focus on you our God and our Savior, in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It may be hard to believe, but it's been 13 years since there was a movie depicting the death of Christ on the cross. The Passion of the Christ was produced and directed by Mel Gibson. Now, I fully appreciate that there is controversy whenever you do a movie trying to depict a biblical story, let alone one depicting Christ. There are dangers therein for sure. I appreciate that. But what I want to draw your attention to has to do with something of a backstory about that movie that is telling and helps us think about this passage. The movie used as one of its major texts, in fact, it printed it on the screen at the beginning, uh, one of the verses from Isaiah 53. But the whole of the passage was used when the writers tried to put to screen what was done to Christ at the crucifixion. Keep in mind, this is a document 
that was written 700 years before Christ actually came to die on the cross, well before crucifixion had even been devised by the Romans, this picture we have of Jesus' sacrifice, the piercing of his hands and feet, on display in Isaiah chapter 53. Well, in the movie, there was uh, an important part to the director and the producer that most people didn't know. Uh, It was the scene when they were crucifying the actor who was uh, playing Jesus and laid there on the cross, and uh, you see a Roman soldier throw him down, and you see one hand with a railroad tie-sized nail, which is accurate, uh, put it down on the hand of the, the actor who's playing Christ, and then you see the other hand come with the the hammer down on it to crush it into his hand. But the film pans away a bit and you only see the hands of the one putting the nail into the hands of the actor who's playing Christ. It turns out that that was Mel Gibson himself. For that scene, he stepped in because he wanted to, as his own show of devotion, confess that he believed it to be true that his sins are what caused the piercing of the hands and the feet of Jesus, the Savior. Now, whatever you think of him, whatever you think of how a movie like that should be done, that's a vivid depiction of the truth, that he was pierced for our transgressions. That picture shows what Jesus endured because of our sin in place of us. And herein lies the essence of, of the Christian faith. We are sinners, estranged and separated from God. And we have radically offended God with our sin. We have personally offended a holy God with our rebellion, with our iniquities, with our transgressions, because they are ultimately against him. We deserve his wrath, and his anger is righteous against our sin. And I think, in the pit of our being, We know that to be true. That's a fruit of redemption I'll give you. But if you think about it long and hard enough, you know we would deserve what we get. This is the truth of our sin for how we have rebelled against him. And there's nothing we could do. We could not do enough to make up for our sin. But as our substitute, taking our place to receive as the worthy substitute, what we could not take. The servant Messiah has made satisfaction for our sins, all by God's appointment. This is the essence of the Christian faith, that Christ would substitute for us the worthy one for unworthy ones, so that he could pay for our sin debt and satisfy God's righteous requirement receive God's wrath so that God would still be just and then we receive his righteousness and be rightly related now with God. There's no more important message than this. And this is what is provided for in Isaiah 53's depiction. This is where we learn the substance of our salvation, where we know that it's true that we are right with God. Now, before we begin looking at verses 4, 5, and 6, I want to lay out for you two interpretive keys, two things that will help you understand why the language appears like it does. The, the first thing you might have noticed when you read this 
This is a text written 700 years before Jesus came, and yet it speaks in the past tense, the present past as it's called sometimes. It says in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We have past tense. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, he was pierced. He was crushed. What does this mean? Well, this is a linguistic device, and it's called the prophetic perfect tense. It's when the prophet speaks with such divine surety about something that's going to come, he speaks as though it's been accomplished. That's what you have here is the prophetic perfect. A Hebrew scholar put it well, describing this device. The perfect serves to express actions, events, or states which the speaker wishes to represent from the point of view of completion, whether they belong to a determinate past time or extend into the present or while still future, are pictured as in their completed state. Speaking with the authority of God, he can speak to the completed work of Christ to come as though it's happened. Now, there's another interpretive point I would like to make about this passage as we go into it. You probably have noticed it keeps using this second person, our griefs. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. What is meant by this? Well, remember the context now. The book of Isaiah is written to the covenant people of God. So we're talking about us and we It's the people of God. But there's something even more pointed here for us to gather, and you will know this from the context as we've been studying Isaiah. You remember that Isaiah is writing to Judah, or Israel, the wayward people of God who are coming under his discipline, the people of God as a whole now, not necessarily all all believers in God's Messiah, but the people of God, Judah. He speaks to the people of God in Isaiah largely that way. But sometimes he's really pointed in the middle of the prophecy speaking to just those who really do believe in God's provision of Messiah. Those who are really saved in the group of them. You can have a church speaking to the church of Galatia, but not everybody's necessarily saved in the church of Galatia, but the message is to the covenant people. And then there are those people within the church that do trust in Messiah. So you have in chapter 50 of Isaiah this interesting interchange when the faithful remnant kind of rise up realizing that Babylonia is coming, they're going to fall under the judgment of God in discipline, and they cry out for God to save. And God says, I will save you. I will bring you salvation. Now, they'll still have to undergo the larger discipline, but he speaks now pointedly to those who believe in God's deliverance, those who believe in his Messiah. And God responds by saying, I will respond. I will give you deliverance. And he's speaking of the long ultimate term, That's true for them when they die and true for the yet to come. And he promises them this. And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. This good news that God will deliver. And then the good news is based on what? What is provided in chapter 53. The essence of the faith. The substance of the faith. Jesus' sacrifice for himself. Now I say this because when it's saying, surely he has borne our griefs. He's talking to those who trust in God's Messiah who trusts in him. We talk about the elect or those who are chosen. Um, How do we know? Well, only God knows that mystery. But do you believe? If you trust in him, it's speaking to you because you believe this word. Now, you didn't always believe this, and you would not have believed it if he had not given you faith, but recognize how personal this is. And this is important for really appreciating 
verse 4, 5, and 6 more fully when we get there. Just to put this on display a little bit, the whole of the Bible reads like this. People get confused about what the Bible's saying sometimes because they forget who it's written to. It's written to the people of God. So in Matthew chapter 1, when the description of Christ's coming is given to us by the gospel writer, she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Very particular, very personal. In John chapter 10, Jesus himself, comparing himself to a shepherd, he says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. He's speaking very specifically to his people. Now, Galatians and Ephesians, these are books that are written to churches, gatherings of called-out people, people that are God's church. And it says in Galatians chapter 1, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. He's talking to Galatians. Who does he mean? He means God's people. That's what he's talking about here. He's not talking about the whole world in general. He's talking to the church and saying to you. Now, within the church, who's really, those who believe, those who believe what they hear. In Ephesians, that wonderful passage that we use to teach about marriage, Christ and the church, and how Jesus, uh, the bridegroom, and the church is the bride. Listen to what Paul writes here. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now, I set that as a beginning interpretive understanding. So when you come to the passage and you read, he has borne our griefs, he has carried our sorrows, he is, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Please recognize the personal, intentional, particular nature of redemption. It was not haphazard. It was perfectly pointed and accomplished. And that's what we have God exacting and showing in the text before us. Now, let's, with that mindset, go to verse 4, 5, and 6, asking a few questions. Uh, We see the, the suffering servant. Why did Christ suffer is question number one. Then, What did Christ do in this suffering? And then who allowed for this arrangement to be the case? So before we go into answering these questions from the text, I will start with a a quotation from Calvin on this passage, and I'll come back, wrap around, and close with this same quotation. So listen closely. It will help you. He says, If we do not perceive our wretchedness and poverty... We shall never know how desirable is that remedy which Christ has brought to us or approach him with due ardor or affection. I think that much of what is a well-meaning explanation of Christianity and churches today leaves out the hard truth of our sin. And if you go long enough in any congregation and you don't address that seriousness of our sin, the more it gets out of out of sight, the more it comes out of our mind. Then when it comes back, it's really, really offensive. I mean, it strikes us, and you can see why after a while, people don't want it at all to be spoken of. But Calvin says this, this is a way that could inoculate us against our understanding and need for the gospel. He goes on, as soon as we know that we are ruined, then aware of our wretchedness, we eagerly run to avail ourselves of the remedy 
which otherwise would be held by us in no estimation. In order, therefore, that Christ may be appreciated by us, let everyone consider and examine himself so as to acknowledge that he is ruined till he is redeemed by Christ. So we recognize that only by Christ redeeming us, according to God's sovereign grace and will, can we come to understand any of this or appreciate any of this. Question one, why did Christ suffer? As we see it starting to be displayed in this passage already last week, and now we come to it again, verse 4 and verse 5. We see why Christ suffered in verse 4 immediately. He has borne our griefs, has carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. He suffers in our place. Why did Christ suffer? Christ was our substitute And that substitution, by the way, came with no cooperation from us. But first, he is our substitute. Verse 4 and verse 5, look at what it says. He bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Now, what are our griefs and our sorrows? This refers to the general state of mankind in sinfulness. Now, there are griefs and sorrows that you and I bring upon ourselves because of the sins we particularly and personally commit. That's true. Grievous and sorrowful our lives can be because of the sin. But even if we didn't do this, we live in a sin-torn world. And there's just sin around. I mean, sickness in general isn't your personal fault, but it happens because we live in a sinful world. There are griefs and there are sorrows that we undertake or we're part of miseries because of sin. And all of us feel it in some way. Yes, sometimes it's personal. Many times it's just the, the nature of things now. And so he bears our griefs and carries our sorrows. These are not his griefs. These are not his sorrows. These are ours, and he carries them for us as our substitute. He was pierced for us, crushed for us, chastised for us, wounded for us. You see, he was our substitute. This is why Christ suffered, to be our substitute for us. A substitute takes another person's place. A substitute stands in as a legal proxy for somebody else. A substitute represents another. A substitute is a stand-in for another. A substitute acts or serves in the place of another. When I say that I'm living vicariously through someone, it means that, that they are me and I want to be where they are and do what they're doing. Vicarious. Scripture refers to Jesus is the second Adam. Why? Because the first Adam was our legal representative. And he fell, and we fell with him. So Jesus comes as the second Adam, our second representative, our substitute. So if we're in him, he is our legal proxy. Scripture refers to Jesus as the servant of Jehovah. The first servant, Israel, called to be God's faithful servants, and they failed. Except for one faithful servant of Israel, Jesus, our representative as the faithful servant. For us means he is our substitute. Verse 6 caps this thought of substitution. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what makes this gracious substitution that we see so clearly here? all the more amazing? You know, it would be one thing if I knew I was a sinner, I couldn't save myself. Jesus comes along Here, Jesus, please take my sin. Go and take my sin. We don't do that. 
That's not what we do. Look at what we think of his display. Natural man, apart from God turning us towards him, looks down upon what Christ did. Now I know you're going to have to think about this for a moment because hopefully you've been a believer a while and you always, always react when you hear about the Lord's death. When you take communion, you are again brought low by the fact that he has, he has died, he has suffered, he has humiliated himself, he's paid for the, the price for us and it's sacred to us. But realize that's only because God has borne you again. You would not think that way of the crucifixion if it were not for that not being the case. Verse 4 tells us what we think like in our natural state. After saying he carries our griefs and sorrows, we esteemed him stricken. We took that carrying as something of a curse. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Stricken, smitten, and afflicted by God. He's cursed. Not somebody who should be hailed as a hero. He was no Messiah who dies like that. A Messiah is a hero who saves us from our enemies. He got killed. This is no victorious David Messiah. More like one of David's conquered foes. He was a cursed man. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. In fact, the Hebrew word for smitten here is most often used in the Old Testament for those who are smitten with leprosy. Smitten by God. Look at the punishment. Look at how he was treated. Surely no one treated like he was could be considered a victor or favored by God. So Jesus goes as our substitute with no cooperation from us. We're not rooting him on. In fact, we're scoffing at him. Now, there's many ways to display how natural man thinks of Jesus' crucifixion. Richard Dawkins, who is a popular atheist uh, today who likes to argue with, uh, with religious people about the idea that there's no God. And Dawkins scoffs at the idea of a crucifixion. And listen, for his, listen to his basis. He said in 2006 in an interview he did, Oh, but of course, the story of Adam and Eve was only ever symbolic. Wasn't it symbolic? So Jesus had himself tortured and executed for a symbolic sin by a non-existent individual. Nobody not brought up in the faith, could reach any verdict other than that's barking mad. See, he looks at it with natural eyes and says, that's crazy that somebody would go through that, which you all describe, and say that that's a victory somehow for somebody. See how natural man despises what happened to Christ on the cross? That's a sign of his disfavor, not his favor, they would say. But it's not just irreligious people who take this Every other religion somehow says something like this about the crucifixion. In Islam, the Quran says that they say, said, and boast, we killed Christ Jesus, the son of Mary, the messenger of Allah, but they killed him not, the Quran says, nor crucified him, but so it was made so to appear. Islam teaches that it was faked, he didn't really die on the cross, because to them that's a sign of weakness and no prophet of Allah would be weak and die like Jesus did. The, the fact that he died on the cross shows that this is, this is a skewed message of Christianity and that's not true. That's not truly what the Messiah would do. See, that's what natural man thinks. They could be religious, but they're still natural in that they're not spirit-born. What's saddest is if you listen to modern Judaism explain Jesus. And there are many many strands I realize. 
But the more religious orthodox strands say this, and this is right from their sight. We do not believe that it is prophesied that the Messiah will be crucified. We do not believe that the Messiah will be the Son of God. We do not believe that he will be raised from the dead any more than anyone else. We do not believe that he will appear twice in what some Christians call a second coming. We do not believe that Messiah will be our Savior in the sense that he will redeem us from our sins. This is from Being Jewish, the website. It goes on to say, The man the Christians worship may have been a good person, and he may have taught many good things. But he was not the Messiah for whom we await and have long awaited. He may have been crucified, and that's a horrible thing. But that merely proves to us that he was not the Messiah. That's the predominant Jewish position about Jesus and his crucifixion. You see, natural man looks upon what Christ did and esteems it stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, cursed. So Jesus was our substitute, and it was with no cooperation from us. In fact, the opposite would be true of our natural reaction to what Christ did. This is why Alec Moitier said so well, the servant was alone in his sufferings. He didn't have us cheering him on. He was alone in his sufferings. We had no part in his sufferings. For we stood aloof, reckoning that he must have deserved all that he suffered. You know, the verse before the passage we started to focus upon from two weeks ago, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We not only ignored Christ in our natural state, we pushed him away. He was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his sorrows, they were ours. In verse 6, caps off this clear idea of our lack of cooperation with what God was doing in Christ. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. A metaphor comparing us to sheep is common and it's not flattering. Um, There are certain animals that can be left to pasture for relatively long periods of time without fear of them wandering or getting into trouble. Sheep are not those animals. Sheep are prone to wander. Sheep are prone to being short-sighted and forgetful. Sheep are concerned with only themselves and the here and the now. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. Why did Christ suffer? To be our substitute, to take our place in the suffering. And Jesus was our substitute with no cooperation from us. And that leads us to the next question that the text answers for us. What did Christ do as our substitute? Very plainly, Christ made satisfaction. He made payment for our sins. Verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. It was our transgressions, our sins, and our iniquities that caused him to undergo suffering and make payment and satisfaction on the cross for us. What did he do? He suffered to satisfy God's righteous requirements as our substitute. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He bears our sins in order to make payment for those sins. 
transgressions, iniquities, violations of God's righteous standards, too numerous to calculate. And God can't simply overlook sin. He must punish it. God is right to be angry with sin. And he is so in the most righteous way. He cannot ignore sin. But he did make a way for forgiveness. If his justice could be met and his righteousness upheld, he could forgive sin. But how could that be the case? Someone worthy would have to take the sin in need of payment upon himself. Someone would have to satisfy it for us. Someone would have to satisfy our debt, pay for our debt. Someone who had the ability to do it and we don't have it. Then God's wrath could be taken out on the worthy person, which is completely unfair. But it would be allowable and legal. The question is not, is it fair for God not to save someone? No, the question is, how is it fair that God would save anybody? Then God's wrath could be taken out on the worthy person, bearing the sins of others, and the others could be forgiven. This is called the penal substitution of Jesus for us. Penal means penalty. He takes the penalty. He satisfies the payment necessary. He satisfied God's righteous requirement. And I want to tell you that this is a very offensive doctrine for people who even want to use the label Christian today. But I want to tell you that it separates Christianity from every other pseudo-religion. This doctrine is not a second level, third level. This is at essential level. And it's offensive to people, even those who still want to call themselves Christian. An example would be just a few years ago, a denomination that uh, we are related to in the distant past that used to have the same confessional standards as, as us. They were devising their annual worship service a few years back, and there was a committee that came together to come up with the worship order for each of the nights that they would be together as a whole assembly. One of the songs that was suggested uh, to be sung In Christ Alone, a wonderfully written song by Stuart Townend and uh, the Gettys. The lyrics are, In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones he came to save. Till on that cross as Jesus died, and this is the, the line that got their attention, till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid, here in the death of Christ I live. Well, the committee didn't like those words. The original lyrics say, on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. Well, the committee wanted to substitute those words with, on the cross, Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. So they asked for permission from Townend and Getty, to substitute those words. And Townend and Getty said, no way. In a summary, I quote, critics say the proposed change was sparkled by liberals wanting to take God's wrath out of the hymnal. But the committee says there were plenty, there's plenty of wrath still in the hymnal. That's not the problem. Instead, the problem is the word satisfied, which the committee says refers to a specific view of theology that it rejects. Well, the committee just specifically rejected the gospel. 
Because you have no gospel. There is no good news if our sins are not paid for and God's wrath is not satisfied. In the simplest possible terms, the biblical doctrine of penal substitution holds that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross takes the place of the punishment we ought to suffer for our sins. If he has not done this, we are still unpaid for. As a result, Jesus has done this. God's justice is satisfied. And those who accept Christ can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Penal substitution is the act of a person, Jesus, taking the punishment for someone else, us, in our offenses. And in Christian theology, Christ is that substitute, and the punishment he took on the cross was our punishment, based on our sin. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, and we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The substitutionary penal atonement of Christ on the cross is central to the gospel message, and it is replete in Scripture. If you take away Christ's satisfaction of God's wrath, you are essentially denying the need for a sacrifice, and you are robbing the good news of any actual good news. And Scripture is not unclear about this doctrine. In 1 Peter For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Later in the same book, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. What does propitiation mean? The word propitiation carries the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction, especially towards God. Propitiation is a two-part act that involves appeasing the wrath of the offended person and being reconciled to him. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, For our sake... He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What did Christ do as our substitute? He made satisfaction for our sins. But I want to tell you something else the scripture says. He then makes us the righteousness of God. Now wait a minute. I want you to get this. So it's not just that God takes away Tony's sin and puts it on Christ and Christ pays for it. And I'm just left there as Tony. No. He then takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to me. So this great exchange, as Luther says, goes like this. Jesus exchanges our unrighteousness, puts it on himself, and gives us his righteousness, and then takes our unrighteousness to the cross, and he nails it there. And God accepts it and raises him, and now we stand with the righteousness of Christ. So you may sin today, and you may think to yourself, there's a sin I've committed that God will never forgive me for. Well, guess what? You're in Christ, so you're forgiven. It doesn't matter what it is you've done or what you think you might possibly do, the The righteousness of Christ outweighs anything you have done, and that's what he sees when he looks upon you because of the substitution of Jesus for you. Who made this possible? Who allowed for this kind of transaction? Verse 6. And the Lord has laid on him 
the iniquity of us all. This is God's appointment. This is God's plan, and it's not plan B. This isn't God's reaction. This is God's design. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after mankind falls, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. He's talking to the serpent, who is the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Already, Genesis 3.15, the plan of God is put on display. And God says, I will raise one up who will crush you, Satan. He will crush Satan and his vestige of sin that is, is, is in us. He will undo the fall by what he does here. He will step on the head of the serpent. Now, when he steps on the head of the serpent, the serpent's going to reach up and bite him on the heel, and it's going to bruise his heel. But a bruise to the head will kill somebody. A bruise to the heel doesn't ultimately. And that's a picture of Jesus coming to pay on the cross. Yes, on the cross, he is crushing Satan. His heel is being bruised, but he is crushing Satan. And that is the first picture we have of God's plan. It is God who has made this arrangement. And then throughout the Bible, he weaves this picture. It's not like it should have been a complete surprise to Judah at this time. Because God had been preparing them in a thousand ways. But right after he frees them from the Egyptians in one of the ultimate shows of redemption, you can imagine a clear picture of God's power over a powerful nation to take a powerless people and redeem them out of slavery. What does he tell them to do? Exodus 12. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to that, uh, that what each of you eat shall make you count for the lamb. So he's preparing them now, the final of these plagues. He's going to show his great delivering hand. And he tells them to get a lamb. A lamb. What, what is a lamb for at this point? It says, your lamb shall be without blemish. So it's going to picture something. And you shall, take, you shall keep it till the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. He's already giving for them in their history and in their practice a picture of Christ's substitutionary atonement for them. Later in the book of Leviticus, after they've now gotten out of Egypt and they are starting towards the promised land, he gives specific instructions to the priests. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of the meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. It's a picture of the substitution by putting hand on the head of the sacrifice. It's saying that my sins go to the sacrifice, and the sacrifice is killed. He's picturing for them what would be necessary for their Messiah to accomplish. Finally, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. It was God who planned for the coming of Christ. It was God who arranged for Christ to be our atoning substitute. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who did this? He made him sin who knew no sin. Franz Dalich, who makes great observations on all the Old Testament, but especially in Isaiah, he writes, All this great multitude of sins and mass of guilt and weight of punishment came upon the servant of Jehovah according to the appointment of the God of salvation, who is gracious in holiness. It was our sins that he bore, and for our salvation that God caused him to suffer on our account. Verse 10, which we'll come to very soon. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ for his people was arranged by God himself. Why did Christ suffer? To be our substitute, to carry our sin debt, to satisfy God's wrath. This is what he did as our substitute in his suffering and in his death. And who made this possible? Who arranged for this? Who allowed for this? God himself. Now, in closing, here again, what Calvin said that I read at the beginning, hopefully with eyes even fresher than before in consideration of these things. He writes, If we do not perceive our wretchedness and poverty, we shall never know how desirable is that remedy which Christ has brought to us, or approach him with due ardor or affection. As soon as we know that we are ruined, then, aware of our wretchedness, we eagerly run to avail ourselves of the remedy, which otherwise would be held by us in no estimation. In order, therefore, that Christ may be appreciated by us, let everyone consider and examine himself so as to acknowledge that he is ruined till he is redeemed by Christ. Isaiah 50, 53, verse 5, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, you and I, we are healed. Let's pray. Father, what these verses reveal about your grace and mercy to us through Christ, it staggers us, Lord Lord Jesus, that you would be our substitute even when we were still sinners, still your enemies. This puts us in awe. And Holy Spirit, we ask for you to increase our love for Christ today, having heard once again what has been done for us through him. In Jesus' name, amen.